Lord, we just thank you for the night. We ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask the Holy Spirit to guide and show us what you would have us to see from this section of scripture. And we just thank you for the opportunity we have to gather and worship you. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in Isaiah 49. In Isaiah 48, we just got done with uh, reading about the Israelites rejecting the Messiah. And now we continue the story of the Messiah, except that he's reaching out to the Gentiles. Us. So, starting at ver uh, chapter 49, verse 1. Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken, you people from afar. The Lord hath called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. He hath made my mouth like the sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft, in his quiver hath he hid me. And said unto me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will glor be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for naught. And in vain, yet surely my judgment is with the Lord, and my work is with God. And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, and to bring Jacob unto me, unto him. So, though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious. Glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, It is a light thing that I should be, that you should be my servant, and raised up the tribes of Jacob, and restored the, and preserve, preserved of Israel. I will also give you light, give you for a light to the Gentiles, and you may be my salvation unto the ends of the earth. All right, so we're going to look at this because this is kind of very interesting because we're not really sure who all's being talked about and being talked of at certain times. At times it seems like he's talking about the prophets. At times it seems like he's talking about the Messiah. But none of them fit either one of them. <laughs> so it's very hard to look at this. But we're going to start. It says, Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken, you people from the far. From, from far. So we know that he's saying, Listen, those that are in the islands that are far away. And this is kind of an interesting statement because God is saying, my children have ignored me. Now I'm going to turn to you. And we know that this is what happened when Jesus died on the cross. Israel had rejected the Messiah. And from that point on, God has been dealing with Gentiles. Now, we know that in the end times, God is going to take the Gentile church out and go back to Israel, so he hasn't forsaken them. The church does not replace Israel, and Israel has not been totally eliminated from God's plan forever, because his plan is to return to Israel. But God does say, when my people reject me, I will turn to others and let them come. And so, on one side, thankfully, Israel rejected God, and we get to, we get to have the full force. But it was always God's plan for Israel to evangelize the world from the very beginning. Uh, and we saw that when we go through Leviticus and we read all the different offerings. And he says, this will be for you and for the strangers that are among you. In other words, Gentiles, that they can come and worship. But the, Gen the Jews have always made it difficult for Gentiles to come to God. They, would not, they were not allowed in the temple. They were not allowed to, to worship God. In, you know, they could get to a certain point. And the sad thing was for them, the, the Gentiles did not even get as close as the women, and the women had no rights with the, with the Jewish people. You know, the women could get closer to the temple than the Gentiles. And that's how much they re hated 
Gentiles, and their attitude was, God chose us, we're special, and we're going to be very special, and the Gentiles, many Jews looked at Gentiles as having been created just to go to hell. <laughs> God, yeah, God had to have somebody to send to hell, so he created Gentiles. Uh, and that's not too far-fetched, because sometimes Christians think that way. There's certain people that some Christians think are just too far gone, and God, God created them just so they go to hell. And that's not true. God loves all people and wants them to all be accepted by him as long as they come to him the way he's established them to come. So he says, listen, O you people that are afar, the Lord has called me from the womb and the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. So this is something that we believe Isaiah is saying this, but it could be all prophets and it could very much be Jesus. All right. So we could go any way on this, but it, it, no matter how we go with it, God basically is saying God knows people even before they're born, no matter how we look at it. And it really is one of those verses that go into the sanctity of life. You know, when people say it's just a blob of tissue, get rid of it. No, God says, I already know that. I know what's in your womb. And whether it's, the, whether it's Jesus they're talking to, and it could be, but Jesus doesn't fit through the whole chapter. He fits in various verses on here, and it could be him for various verses, but it could also be even the prophets, because Jeremiah is going to say, God knew me from the womb and had a plan for me, so that he goes, I was called to be his. So we don't, we're not going to make any hard stance on this one, because everybody I read and looked at on this didn't really know who's being talked to. They kind of think it's the prophets as a gathering, not, not just one prophet, not just Isaiah, but all the prophets. And I can buy that, but even them, even there, they're not sure. And it says, he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hid me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me. Now, this was why we don't really believe it's Jesus, because this whole part here doesn't seem to make much sense. All right. But it says, God has given us words to speak. And the kind of interesting thing, when we speak God's words, sometimes they are sharp. Sometimes they are cutting because God is looking to take the bad out of people's lives. And sometimes our words need to be what it is. And this is something that's hard. It's hard sometimes to listen to somebody who loves you enough to tell you the truth. And we might get offended. We might get irritated. Hopefully when we sit back and think, okay, that person loves me enough to speak truth to me, it's worth it. Uh, but sometimes we get to the place where we just get so offended we won't listen anymore. And that's happened. I've had people do that to me over, over the years of teaching. Get offended at something I say and stop attending a Bible study or church or whatever it might be. And I can't help that. That's between them and God. All I can do is try not to be offend, offensive on purpose. And uh, it's, it's easy for people to just take and get offended. You know, I've been offended at times when people have come to and I have to sit back and go, God, what is it that you were trying to teach me? Should I, have, should I maybe not have been offended? And that's usually the case. Because even when somebody says something wrong to us, we need to listen to it and say, God, was there something, some truth in that? Even though they may have said it harshly in the wrong way, was there truth in what they said? Do I need to pay attention? Was there at least something I could learn from it? And this is what he's saying. My mouth has a sharp sword, and in the shadow of your hand you have hid me. God 
puts us in his hand and hides us. This is the good, this whole chapter is about the sovereignty of God in many ways. God knowing us from the beginning, God putting the words in our mouth, God hiding us in his hand. I think it's so neat how you said that he knew us before we were born. Uh-huh. I love that. He knows us. And he has a plan. He still created us. Yes. <laughs> then he says he is polished, and this literally means that he is tested and selected. Okay, he has tested and selected the shaft, or the, the, the shaft of the arrow. And then it says, he, hide, he hides me in his quiver. This is a beautiful picture of how God takes and puts us in amongst other believers. He has selected the shafts, he has perfected them, he has cleaned them up, he has straightened them, and then he puts us all in a quiver, in, in a group. And the beauty of this is that each one of us is part of God, God's family, and each one of us as his family are part of each other. We are hidden in the quiver, and God will pull whatever he wants out of the quiver to use. And this is a beautiful picture that he has because he tells us that we are to be part of a church, a select group of believers, and we make that group ours. And the sad thing is, in our day and age especially, people get offended in a church or don't like something that's said, and they go to another church. And then they're going to get offended at that church. It will be sometime between three to five, six years. They'll get offended at that church, and they'll move on to another church. They'll stay there for a few years and get offended and move on to another church because what do they do? They take their problems with them. And every time that problem is touched on that, that church, they'll leave because that, that church is getting... That pastor, that teacher is getting, getting nosy. He's, he's bothering in, in my personal life. And they'll leave. And this is the thing about it. God says we're to be in the body. And that body sometimes is going to cause pain. You know, when we get hurt, something happens you know, to our physical body. We're, we're hammering a nail and we accidentally miss the nail. <laughs> and this hand hurts the other hand. <laughs> You know, uh, and then all of a sudden, everything about the body goes to take care of that, that injury. If we end up cutting ourselves, the body will lessen the flow of blood everywhere else in the body to send more blood to that spot that's bleeding to try to get the coagulation and the, and the healing and the white blood cells to fight the, fight the uh, germs and everything else. The rest of the body will say, okay, that part needs help. We'll send it over there. That happens in, even amongst Christians. We help each other out if we're really being a true body of Christ. This person needs help, we'll do without so that that person can get the help they need at the time. We're hidden in his quiver. He says, I place you all together in my quiver. And it and puts, him, puts him there. And then verse 3, And said unto me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So even though he's turning to the Gentiles, he has not forsaken Israel. He says, Israel, you're my servant. Whether you want to be or not, you're my servant. Whether you think you are or not, you're my servant. <laughs> kind of the way he is when we become his. You're my child. You're my servant. Even when you don't think you're my servant, you're my servant. Even when you don't want to listen to me, you're mine. And God says, because you're mine, I'm going to chastise you. <laughs> and correct you when you're not doing the right things. But he says, through Israel, he will be glorified. 
And Israel has been a strong place for God in, over the years off and on. And they will be during the millennial kingdom when he reigns from Israel. So that they will get his glory one way or the other. He's going to get his glory through Israel. And everybody will be going to Israel because that's where God reigns. When Jesus reigns in the millennial kingdom, he's going to reign in Jerusalem. And the whole world will come to Jerusalem as the capital. And it's kind of interesting. God has promised us we're going to have a one world government that he's in charge of. And what is Satan trying to accomplish in this world? A one world government that he is in charge of. All right? And it's very true that Satan always counterfeits whatever God's got planned, Satan puts counterfeits in. And so God is saying, I will be glorified. Then he said, then said I, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught. And in vain, yet surely your judgment is, my judgment is with, with the Lord and my work is with God. So Isaiah here is saying, as with most of the prophets, I am wasting my time. <laughs> Nobody's listening to me. One of the prophets I've always felt sorry for was Jeremiah because God told him, you're going to preach for me and nobody's going to listen. I would hate to have that call. It would be bad enough to have that call. But to be told that nobody was going to listen to me and I was going to serve God would be hard. And here's Isaiah saying the same thing. I'm wasting my time, God. These people are not listening to me. And you know how many times do we feel that way? Whether we're raising family and our family just seems not to be responding to us the way we want them to respond, and nobody, they're not growing, they're not making the moves. If you're a teacher and you teach people and they make the same mistakes over and over and over again, and you're going, God, why am I here? You know, why, why is nobody listening? And then he comes to this idea that says, but yet surely my judgment is with the Lord, and my works are with God, my wages are with God. He says, all right, God, it may seem like I'm doing nothing down here in this earth. It may seem that I am wasting my time, but I'm doing it for you. And you are going to be the one that rewards us. This is an important thing for us to understand. When everything seems to be a waste of time, my serving God, my teaching, my instruction, my helping of others, I need to be aware that God still sees it. And God still has a reward in plan for me, even though I don't see it. And this is why it's so wonderful to know all things work together for good is, is by God's standards, not my standards. I may never on this work, lifetime see why anything I do has any value. Now, God usually lets us see some value somewhere at some time. Because one thing he knows about us is that we're human. We walk by sight. And it's tough. It's tough when God doesn't let us see anything happening. And yet he says, my work is in God's hands. I am his work. And then it says in verse 5, And now says the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glory, glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. He's saying, Israel doesn't seem to be following. Jacob might come back. But my glory is in God. My glory is in God. And this is something that is very important for us to keep in mind. Paul in Romans 8.18. Get to my marker. 
said something very similar. He said, For I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed. So Paul has said the same thing that Isaiah is saying here. I'm suffering now. Nothing seems to be doing anything any good. Yet God has a reward. We need to keep that in mind. If we're following God, we're serving God, he has a reward. Even if it looks like nothing is happening, he has a reward. Verse 6 goes on to say, he said, it is a light thing, uh, it is a light thing that you should, should be my suf- a servant to rise up the tribes of Jacob to restore them and preserve Israel. I will also give you for a light to the Gentiles that you may be my salvation to the end of the earth. So he says, a light thing, trivial. You know, basically he's saying, you think, it's so, you think it's so small? You think it's so insignificant? And one of the things we need to keep in mind, if you've ever done anything with mechanical work, sometimes the most important piece of the, of the engine or the thing you're trying to get to work is a little tiny gear or a little tiny shaft that says, well, I don't really need this piece, do I? It's insignificant. And yet God says, even those most insignificant pieces are important. You know, one of the things, if you think about your foot, we have five toes on our foot. Do you know which toe holds the weight of your body? No, it's not the big toe. Big toe is for balance. Your little toe holds the weight of the foot. The one that you would think is the most insignificant, not needed toe on your foot is the one that holds all the weight. Your big toe is important for balance. You lose your big toe, you lose balance. But if you lose your little toe, you're in more trouble. Little things in God's kingdom hold great importance. When we serve God and we think we're just an insignificant nobody who's never done anything for God, we're going to get to heaven and find out, if we're truly his servant, that we've done more than we think we've done. The times we've prayed, the times we've just spoken a kind word to somebody or given somebody a gift or a help. And God's saying, you touched this person more than most people did. Now, I think back to Mueller when he's praying for breakfast. The poor milk guy whose who's, uh, cart broke down right in front of the orphanage was not thinking about him being a real special, special character, and yet his story is known to, the, to this day for having been the answer to prayer. I don't know if he was a Christian or not. That's another story altogether. The baker we know was a Christian because he said, God put it on my heart to bake this stuff and bring it to you. The, the milkman, we don't know where he was. All we know is God used him to answer a prayer and he still remembered over 100 years since it happened. How many times does God use insignificant people doing what they think is not that important to bless others? And we can do the same thing. If we think about, sometimes when we think about the people who have truly blessed us, you know, in our lifetime, if you were to talk to them, they might not even realize that they have done anything really special. They were just being themselves. They were just serving God in their, in their light way, thinking, maybe even thinking they've done nothing. You, they said something that so impacted you and changed your life. And I can tell you, each one of us, 
if you've been if you've been speaking to people and talking to them there's somebody out there that you have touched in their life and you may think oh I've never done anything I've never touched anybody and you're gonna find out later at some point that this person or that person had a major major event in their life I believe it was uh, uh, not Billy Sunday uh, one before many one of the great evangelists of our time got saved because the shoe salesman just gave out gave his gospel. Graham. Was it Billy Graham? I didn't think it was that recent. It came down Moody. Okay, couldn't remember if it was Moody or Billy Graham, yeah. but one of the two of them, you know, just got saved by somebody insignificant, who if he hadn't done his job to share the gospel, an evangelist wouldn't have been saved, and that evangelist then reached. The hundreds of thousands of it was Moody and millions of it was Billy Graham. But even if it was Moody, then they, they, he's a direct you know, line of, of uh, Billy Sunday and Billy Graham. So I think it was Moody because I think it was the beginning, I think it was the beginning of the line that, so if that shoe salesman had not witnessed to Moody, then the whole line may not have gotten saved. And hundreds and thousands and millions of people may not have gotten saved. Now God would have done something else, but do you think that man thought he was going to be responsible for millions of salvations? No. And I think it was Moody because I remember reading that book and he was terrified. This man was kind of terrified. It was the first, first time he had shared the gospel with anybody. And he wasn't sure how Moody was going to handle, you know, accept it because Moody was not a nice guy before he was saved. So he was nervous about the whole thing and he ended up leading him to the Lord which led to a, a long stream of things. What will happen with us if we're just faithful? Maybe we're terrified. Maybe we have, maybe we stumble over every word we speak and it touches somebody. You know, and God says, I've got a blessing for that. I've got a blessing. You think it's a light thing to serve me? And he gives out a blessing. And this is something that's really important for us that, that because we will be a light. Jesus said, we are a light set on a hill and we are to be a light to the world. Our life should be such, lived in such a way that people look at us and say, you know, you know I like to say, you know, they think we're weird and strange, which they, they, the world will. The world's going to think we're weird and strange. We're happy when we should be sad. We're joyful. We're not, we're not depressed, you know, when things don't seem to go our way, you know, and we're serving God and they just don't understand it. You know, they don't understand it. You, you come in and you're just having a good time and you're singing and humming and all this and people are going, what are you so happy about? Oh, I don't know, God is in charge, and it's a wonderful day. And we sit there, and he says, I have raised you up. And this verse 6 almost goes back to looking at a Messiah. <laughs> All right? But if God is in us, it can also be us. We are a light to the world. We are the, the ones that represent salvation to them. We're not their Savior, but we represent salvation to the world. Because they look at us and say, you have something I want. And this is one of the reasons we as Christians can be able to reach people. We have something that they want. They see the joy. They see the satisfaction. They see us hopefully not grumbling and complaining about everything that happens to us. And they're going, there's something in you that's different. And we are a light. We are a salvation to the end of the world. And then, then we go to verse 7. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and, he, and his Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nations abhor, 
to, this, to a servant of, of rulers, God shall see and, ari- and arise. Princes shall also shall worship because the Lord that is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose you. Thus saith the Lord, in an acceptable time have I heard you, in a day of salvation have I helped you, and I will preserve you, and I will give you for a covenant to the people to establish the earth, to cause the, to inherit the desolate heritage, that you may say to the prisoners, go forth to them that are in darkness, show yourselves, and they shall feed in the, in, in the ways, and their pastures shall be in the high places. They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor the, nor the sun smite them, for he that hath mercy on them shall lead them, even by the springs of water shall he guide them. And, will, and I will make my, way, my mountains away, and my highways shall be exalted. Behold, these shall come from far and low, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Shinim. This one I'm definitely thinking is Jesus as he's talking about it. All right. So he says, Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel. This is literally the kinsman redeemer, the one that buys back all this lost in the family. God gave man authority over the world. Man sinned. When Adam and Eve sinned, they gave authority for the world given to them to Satan. And Satan became the God of this world until Jesus came and died on the cross and took the title deed back. Now, he hasn't taken everything back yet. He's going to do that during the millennial kingdom. But Satan no longer is the god of this world. He thinks he is. He acts like he is. But God has taken the title back. He's the, he, was, he, was, he had title deed to the world because the man gave it to him. God took it back through the redemption which kinsman redeemer. Man sold themselves cheap. Satan had that deed. God came back and said, fine, I'm going to pay the price and I'm going to take back what, what was given away. Is that because Adam sinned? That's why Satan has... Adam sinned and gave away his dominion. Oh. Oh. All right, which, the, which is, if we go to kinsman redeemer, if you know the story of Ruth, Boaz was the kinsman redeemer. He paid off all the debts that had been accumulated for Naomi and, Boaz, uh, and Ruth, bought back, their, bought back their land to himself. It was their kinsman redeemer. He took back what they had sold because that was his job as kinsman redeemer. He's the picture of Jesus buying back what man sold and puts, put us into slavery for a period of time. And we still are without Christ. But he bought back. He says, you sold this, I'm buying it back. It's now mine. It always was in one sense. But he says, you know, you sold it cheap. I'm buying it back. And this is the thing about Israel. The inheritance that they had, their land that they had, they never sold it for good. They basically rented it. You know, until the year of Jubilee, when it was all returned to everybody who sold, Jesus is our Jubilee as well. He says, I am going to take back my world. And so here we see the Redeemer of Israel, and His Holy One, which I believe is the Holy Spirit. A lot of people try to point to that as being Jesus, but He's already the Redeemer. So I really believe the Holy One here is the Holy Spirit. Yeah, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in this verse. The Father speaking, 
and he's talking about the Son and the Holy Spirit. All right? To him whom man despises, to him to whom, him whom the nations abhor. Clearly Jesus. He was abhorred by the nations. Nobody wanted him. And the world system does not want Jesus. And we're still in that way. The world system still doesn't want Jesus. And how many times do we get infected by the way the world thinks? And it is sad because we have a flesh that easily desires the world's way of thinking. You know, God says that it's hard to follow him because of the fact that we are going to want to follow the wrong way, which is why he wants to crucify our flesh so that we will follow him and do it correctly. And it says here that to a, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes shall also worship and call, because the Lord that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel and he shall choose you. So again, Jesus and the Holy Spirit chooses us. And chooses Israel, chooses us. You know, do we really understand what it means to be chosen by God? He loves us so much. And he chose to die for us. And he chooses to accept us. He chooses to give us grace. He chooses to clothe us in the righteousness of Christ and make us complete and make give the finished work of Christ all by his choosing. It's an awe-inspiring thought to think God chose me. To whom he cho has chosen, he has predestinated to be his follower. God chose us. Why? Because he wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> There's no reason why. He decided to choose us. None of us was good enough to deserve God choosing us. None of us are going to be good enough for God to choose, you know, want to choose us. Even if we manage to be really good in this life, we're still not good enough for God to choose us by our own, by our own uh, work. God just chooses us. And I love that. It's a wonderful thing to be chosen by God to be held by God and to be kept by him. And to see what he's doing is just an amazing thing. Verse 8, Thus saith the Lord, In an acceptable time I have heard you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you. I will give you covenant to my people to establish the earth and to cause an inheritance to inherit the desolate heritage. This particular verse was quoted by Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.2, where Paul said the same thing. In the accepted time, when the time was right, God brought grace into this world. All right, now, God has always had grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Abraham found grace with God. But God's in the Old Testament, his grace was always tempered pretty heavily by the law and rules. And God's covenant with Israel was one of, if you do such and such and such and such, I will bless you. And if you don't do these things, I'm gonna, you're going to have a curse. Now, the Abrahamic covenant was non-conditioned. God told Abraham, everywhere you've touched, everywhere your foot is touched, you will possess 
your family will, your nation, your family will be counted by the numbers of the stars or the, or the dust of the earth. And so his promise was unconditional. At Mount Sinai, God made a conditional promise to the people. If you obey my words, I will bless you. If you do not obey my words, you will be under the curse. David was given an unconditional covenant. Your seed will always sit on the throne. Didn't matter. He didn't say, David, if you listen and pay attention to me and you obey me, you'll have this. He was just an unconditional promise of this is what's going to happen. Unconditional promise in Noah's day. I will never again flood the whole earth from God's, from God's perspective. So we look at these things and it says here, in the accepted time, the right time, the appropriate time that God had in place. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will preserve you. Isn't it wonderful that we as his followers have his help and his preservation? To know that God is always right there. He never leaves us. His hand is right there with us. We may try to walk away from him, but he is right there watching over us, saying, okay, all right, you've gone a little bit out of the way. Let's get you back. Let's bring you back. Swatch your bottom a little bit to bring you back. Maybe pick you up and drag you back, depending on how stubborn you're going to be. The big shepherd's hook. The big shepherd's hook you back. You know, but he says, I give you a covenant of the people to establish the earth and cause to inherit the desolate heritage. Jesus came as a new covenant to give us what is totally destroyed by the world. But he redeems it. And he cleans it up. And he's made a covenant and he establishes his word. He establishes us and upholds us. Just as he always had a remnant with Israel, Israel has always had a remnant of believers and followers. Even in the church, there will always be a remnant of believers. During the dark ages, when the church did not follow the Bible as a whole and all these rules and everything came in from the, from the Roman Catholic Church and they got further and further away from God, there was always a remnant of people that followed God, both in the, in the Roman Catholic Church and outside the Roman Catholic Church. A lot more outside than in, but there was always a remnant of people saying, we're going to follow God. We're going to obey God. We're going to seek after him. He has established his people. As we get closer and closer to the end days, the church is going to fall away as a whole. And I'm going to say church is a very generic word, but true Christians are even going to fall away because they're not being taught. They're not being established. And God's going to say, I will always have a remnant of believers. After he takes the church away, he, he takes 144,000 Jewish believers and, and makes them his new remnant to lead Israel into the following of the Messiah. So he says, I will establish. And I will give an inheritance out of the desolate. <laughs> you know, an inheritance. Now, the word here for inheritance is, is something that's good. And I think God means just that. He's going to take out of the desolation and give us something good. 
And this is the wonderful thing. As we live with him, we follow him. How many times can we see the good in, in these events that come our way? Even though we don't see, don't, you know, if we were to look at it from the flesh, nothing may have happened. You know, one of the things I love is being able to just say, God, I so much trust you that I really want to believe that nothing bad has happened to me. And I kind of do believe that nothing bad has happened to me even when bad things happen to me. Because God's got a reason. He is sovereign and knows the beginning from the end. And he knows why everything that happens to me happens. Even if I cause it, he knows why it's happened. And he's promised that that will be for good. So he takes the desolate things and makes an inheritance out of them. So like the desolate heritage, is that like just because there's just a remnant left? Well, in this case, desolate her her uh, heritage is all the bad stuff around you, the totally destroyed world. And then he gives us an inheritance out of it and turns it around to be something good. You know, he's given us an inheritance of the desolate uh, heritage, but we don't see it that way. At least we as Christians don't see it that way. We're not seeing a totally, okay, here's God giving me a bunch of broken stuff. You know, I have not had God give me a bunch of broken stuff ever. Now, the world may see some of what I've been given as broken stuff, but I say, wow, God, this is wonderful. Look at the blessings you have given me. All right? And because we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world, and God still blesses us. I love that he's come in, and he's given me a piece that passes understanding, so even when things seem to be going bad, I can have joy. I can have peace. I'm going, God, wow, isn't this wonderful? God has used everything that's happened in my life to do so many things and prepare me and make it able for me to minister to people. And... I just look at it and say it's a way to grow. So I have an inheritance out of everything bad that happens. And you, we all do, if we want it to let, look at it from God's perspective. How does, how does it not fit that? When I start moaning and groaning because I'm looking at it the way the world does. God, I don't have. God, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. You know. God, look at all the bad things that are happening to me. And I can almost feel God wanting to slap us upside the head and say, pay attention to what I've given you. And I, and I really think that God wants us to look at everything he allows to come our way as good. Now, it may not feel good to us at the moment. It's going to lead to godliness. It's going to lead to a benefit. And it strengthens us. You know, uh, Andre Crouch's song that we sing, If I never, had never had a problem, I'd never know that God could solve them. Why do I have problems? So I can lean on God and depend on God. Why do I have hardships in my life? So that I can know that I and my flesh cannot get through it. I have to lean on God. So the more I lean on God, the less the hardships are in my life because the sooner I switch over and say, God, I need you. Now, when we get really there, we'll just turn to God automatically and say, God, thank you. I need you. It usually takes us a while and we will probably never get there completely because... We, the more we realize that God is sovereign, nothing happens to us that he does not allow. All right? We need to really understand that. He is the one that everything that goes through, our, through to us goes through. For Satan to attempt us, he has to go through God. Now, we can make decisions because we are, we are evil. We can make decisions without Satan tempting us. 
But even then, God knew what we were going to decide and what we were going to do and will turn it to good. Now, it doesn't mean there's not going to be consequences for it. It doesn't mean that our heart life isn't going to be miserable because of the choices we make. But God will make something good out of it. And this is the important thing for us to understand. No matter what happens, God is in control. Even if I totally mess it up, I do everything wrong, and even if I do it wrong on purpose, knowing that it's wrong, God will turn it to good. Now, it doesn't mean I'm not going to suffer the consequences for those decisions. It just means God will use it for good. Sometimes those consequences will strengthen us, and they're why we can be strong. There's things that will happen in our testimony because I went through certain things, and it makes me able to talk to others. And I've shared with you, because of my testimony having never gone deep into sin, there's a lot of people that can't, I can't talk to because they're just going to tune me out. Uh, who are you? You don't know what I've gone through. Okay. Yeah, I, I just suffered the temptations and didn't go to fall for them. Uh, no big deal, you know. Uh, you know, maybe it is a big deal. But, you know, there, there are people that are just going to tune me out because I, but, you know, some people will go into, if somebody has been abused in their lifetime, they're able to talk to people who've been abused and they'll listen because they know that that person knows exactly where they're coming from. Maybe not exactly, but at least can empathize with them enough to say, yes, I know what it's like to be hurt by the one that I love or by somebody that I love. You know, somebody who has had their house burnt down <laughs> is going to understand, you know, when that person has had their house burnt down or all their property taken from them, they're going to go, yes, I know what that feels like to lose everything. So we see this over and over again that God is saying, there's a plan and I'm going to give you good out of these things. It's going to work out. And then verse 9 says, That you may say to the prisoners, Go forth to them that are in darkness, show yourselves. You shall feed in the ways, and their pastures shall be in high places. I love this. You shall say to the prisoners, the bound ones, the bound up ones, the unsaved, or even maybe even Christians who are, haven't experienced true grace, or true understanding of God who are bound up under the rules and laws, but primarily the lost. Bound up. And I know that there's many people who claim to be Christians that are bound up. They are so tied up, they have no freedom in God. Like Pharisees. Huh? Pharisees and legalists, you know, that just, they're so bound by the law. And I can't say that they're saved or not saved, probably not in many cases, but they definitely don't know God's freedom. They're still bound up by rules, by laws. They have no liberty. And then it says, go forth, and to them that are in the darkness. That's definitely the lost. And again, it could be a Christian who's not growing. That they're hiding in the darkness. And it says, show yourselves. Get out of the darkness. Get out of the pit. Get, get, out, of the, get out of your closet and get out into the light. And he says, they shall feed in the ways by the roads. And their pastures shall be in the high places. God feeds his people amongst all the others. And it's kind of fun. It's fun to be a Christian talking to the lost and, you know, you're being fed and they're, and they're starving. And you go, isn't it wonderful? Isn't God good? 
and they just growl at you and they look, give you dirty looks or make snide comments because they just don't understand God being in control. It doesn't make sense to them. And our pastors, we will, we will be fed in the roadways, in the, in the byways, in where we're going. In our, and we will also be fed in the, and our pastures shall be in the high places, in the protected places. You know, and it's a wonderful thing here that God is saying. He says, I'm going to take care of you in your day-by-day activities. When you're walking with the world, I'm taking care of you. When you're in the high place, the mountain place, I'm taking care of you. And there's times when God puts us in, in, the, in the mountaintops where everything seems to be, we're just so one with God and everything's happy. We're having a wonderful time. Oftentimes they're in retreats or something where we're just having a great time with God and everything's good and we're having a happy time with Him. The only problem with mountains is we have to come down at some time to the valley. But God promises us even in the way that we're walking, when everything seems crazy in our life, He's there feeding us. And I love that. Wherever I'm at, whatever I'm doing, God is there taking care of me. Even when I don't feel like he's taking care of me because I'm not up on the mountaintop eating at the pasture land, God is there. And the more we realize it, the easier it is to find him. Because when I know he's there, then I can start looking for him. But if I listen to my emotions, God, uh, (laughs) there's no God here. Nowhere around me. All these bad things wouldn't be happening to me if God was right here. But when I know that he's there, I can start looking for him. Oh, there you are. Okay. You know, how easy is it for this to happen? I remember one time one of my kids got away from us in the grocery store and they were only one aisle over. But all of a sudden they realized that we were lost. <laughs> at least from their perspective. And all of a sudden they screamed out. And we had to run around the corner and say, here we are and come. And how often do we do that with God. We just get so wrapped up with where we are, we get wrapped up and realize all of a sudden that God's lost. Now, it's not God that's lost. (laughs) We have just kind of forgotten to walk around the corner that he walked around, and hopefully we'll be able to call out to God and say, oh, there he is. There he is. But it is very easy for us to get so busy in this world and forget God and feel like we're all alone when God's standing right there next to us because our mind and eyes are not focused on him. And that's why I love the story of Peter getting out of the boat. He was, happy, he was doing well, walking on the water until he didn't look at Jesus anymore. Because if you read that closely, it says, and he saw the waves. And as soon as he saw the waves, he started sinking. Why? I'm really sure that he started really realizing, you know, I can't walk on the water. I, can't, I, I shouldn't be out in the water in this storm. Now, what am I, what, I'm not even in a boat in this storm. Look at these waves. He looked at the storm and not at God who is standing right in front of him. And all of a sudden panicked. We do the same thing and God says, I am right there. I am in the way with you. <laughs> I am right with you. And then the, then the promise on it, they shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall heat nor sun smite them. For he that hath mercy on him shall lead him, even by springs of water shall he guide them. This is the promise that God gives us in the middle of all of our trials and tribulations and struggles. He's right there. He's not going to let us go hungry. He's not going to let us go thirsty. He's not going to let us get a sunburn. 
Really, that's what that says. The sun shall not smite them. You know, he says, for he that has mercy on them shall lead them. God has mercy. And we've talked about what mercy means. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. That is one of the greatest things that God does for us. Because when we know how bad we are and what we deserve, <laughs> we know that God is merciful. Because he has let us live and hasn't destroyed us, which is what we deserve. And yet he says, he that has mercy on us shall lead us even by the springs of water. He gives us living water. Jesus is the living water. And he says, I'm going to bring you by the water all the time. You're going to have plenty of water. You're not going to be thirsty. You're not going to be hungry. You're not going to be burnt. He goes, I am the one that's going to lead you and guide you. What a blessing that we have. He shall be our guide. Now, the problem we have is like so many people, and this sometimes happens even in hunting parties and stuff that are guided party, and the people decide they don't want to listen to the guide. You know, they pay that guide thousands of dollars to show them where the animals are, and then they think they know better. <laughs> How many times do we think we know better than God? He wants to be our guide, and we're going, uh, God, I don't think I want to go that way. This way looks shorter. This way looks like it's a better way. And he says, well, you don't know what's down the road a mile. This one is better because down the road a mile, there's great big pits and, and, and holes that you're going to fall into. We go this other way. It may not look as smooth, but it's better in the long run. And we need to be careful to let him be our guide and listen to him. How do we listen to him? We get into the word. We listen to teachers. We listen to the Holy Spirit. And we listen for that still, small voice to guide us. One of the things that God does not do in our life, he does not come out like a foghorn yelling at us. He speaks softly. And it's interesting, as teachers are instructed to and they're teaching the class, when the class gets noisy, the teacher either starts talking softer or stops talking altogether. And the class eventually will say, what's going on? The teacher stops speaking. And they all of a sudden start quieting down because something's wrong. The teacher, that's bad teacher though. The teachers who get louder and louder end up with a class that gets louder and louder. But if you start softening your voice to a lower pitch or even stop speaking, eventually the people start going, what's going on? The, the person who's supposed to be talking is not talking. I do that at the prison a lot of times when the guys start talking. I'll just stop talking and all of a sudden they'll kind of look around like, oh, <laughs> And, and I don't need to yell at them. I don't need to get upset with them. I just need to stop, and they, start, and they start paying attention. God does the same thing with us. If we're not paying attention to him, he doesn't scream louder to get our attention. He just stops. And hopefully, eventually, we realize that he's not talking and start listening and try to figure out why he's not talking, which means usually we've left him behind or, or gone in a direction he doesn't want, but he is our guide if we'll listen. He says, I will make my mountains away and my highways shall be exalted. Mountains can cause quite a problem for us in travel unless somebody builds a road. And that's what he says. 
I will make my mountains a way or a road. So in other words, God is creating a path, a path through the mountains. Can, can, I don't know how many of you think about this, but I think about this a lot, especially when I travel back and forth from Kingman to here. I've got a mountain that I go over. How hard was that mountain to go over before they built the road? My car sure wouldn't have made it. I mean, I'd have had to go all the way down, down into Golden Valley, up the valley, and back up around again, which would have added another 20 minutes even by car. But somebody decided to make a road, to make a way through the mountain. And here is God saying, I have changed your mountains in front of you that cause you struggles, and I've made a road, I've made a way through it. I've made a road. And he says, my highways are, are, high, are, are lifted up. They are built up. They're not at ground level where they're going to get flooded and, and full of mud. He says, they're lifted up. And this was the, the royal highways all were lifted up in that day above the regular road. The regular road would run beside it, it would get muddy and the water would pool up, but the lifted up high road, the water would roll off of, and God says, my ways are high. What does that mean? They're easy to travel. He's, we see a mountain in front of us and God has put a road through it. Through the plain that would be full of bogs and mud and, and, and waterways, he says, I have given you a, a, a high road to walk on. So that you're not sloshing through the mud. You're not sloshing through everything. You have a, a lifted up road. Above the muck. Above the mire, above everything else. That's why we call it So, and he says, I've given you all of this. And all we got to do is walk with God and let him be our guide. And he walks us on an easy path. It is possible to walk through this world and not feel the struggles and the problems that are, are hitting us because we're on a high road. We're coming up to the mountain and we're going through the path, uh, through the mountain. It doesn't mean it's an easy path. I mean, some of, these, some of our paths, the roads to the highways are very steep inclines, but they're nice smooth road going up that incline. God says, I made a path for you. It may be steep, it may be tough, but it's a lot easier than climbing up the mountain by hand and going up the rocks. <laughs> All right? And he says, this is what I've done for you. And he says, behold... These shall come from far, talking about the Gentiles, and lo, these shall come from, these from the north, from the west, and from the land of Shinim. Now most of it, we don't really know where the land of Shinim is, but most people believe that it was in the east. Because Israel sits on the Mediterranean, so you really don't go west directly from them. It says, everybody from the north, everybody from the south, and I really believe that they're right when they say everybody from the east. And maybe even the far east, one person suggested. You know, God calls the Gentiles from around the world. All over the world they were called and to follow him. And we're told that all nations will be represented in God's church. And we're pretty close. If we're not there, we're very close to all nations being represented I truly believe that we're at a place where everybody has heard or had the opportunity to hear. And if nothing else, we fill the airwaves with television and radio and shortwave and, and the internet is full of the gospel message. You would be surprised how many of them have heard as well. You know, the world has heard and it's amazing if you get out in the middle of the jungles and everything, how many times you find satellite dishes. 
on these new tri on these tribes that have contact with the rest of the world. Because I just finished the peace child again, and they hadn't heard the gospel yet, but they had a peace child. They had the message. They knew that they needed God. The uh, Central American tribes, when the conquistadors came there with the gospel message, said, well, we've been waiting for the rest of the message. Okay, God has given people the basic message of salvation, and they have it. They may not know all of it, but they know enough to get saved because they know they need God. They may not know the name of Jesus, but they know that they need God to be their payment. And so they can get saved. And everywhere that missionaries have gone into the tribes, they would always find this small remnant of people that didn't live like the rest of the people because they just knew that what was going on was wrong. And they were serving God to the best of their ability and knowledge. And they were very receptive to the gospel message when they heard the full gospel message and go, yeah, that's, that's kind of what we believe. Now we know the rest of the story. We've been looking for that story. God will make sure that those who are called will come to him. Whatever that takes, whether it's a vision, a dream, you know, him giving the gospel directly to them, they will get the, they will get the message. Everybody, everybody, will, everybody will hear, and if you're anywhere near a Christian, you might be like the, the Muslims in the Middle East many times that are seeking God, know that Muslim, the Muslim faith isn't giving them what they want, and God says, in a dream, Jesus comes to them and says, go, go, go see one of the people of the book. And they will go to a Christian and get saved. Uh, we know that many of these tribes have had people that know that, know that they can't do it themselves and they need God to, to, to uh, be, their, be their salvation. They don't know it's Jesus necessarily, but they know that it takes God. And what, what is salvation? Putting my trust in the one that paid my debt that I can't pay. So God is reaching all these, all these people. All these people have got the message because everybody goes back to the Tower of Babel and Noah. The truth is out there. It may be, may be screwed up and messed up in their, in their teachings, but the truth exists in every place. That makes sense because a lot of them have a, a, like a remnant of the gospel. It's kind of muddled. It's muddled. The, the gospel is painted across the skies and the constellations, and every nation has the same set of constellations. And you know that there's no, when you look up there and see the Big Dipper, you, none of us see a bear. All right? The bear is the story behind it, but we don't see the bear. We don't see, and you see something that might, you know, might, might be a stick figure of a person with no head. You know, Orion, which has a huge story behind him because his foot is over the serpent's head as he is getting ready to be bit by the serpent and his club is ready to strike the lion, which is the next one over, the gospel is painted across the stars. The stars in the sky with the constellations all have the gospel message behind them. And if you're far enough south, you see the Southern Cross, which is a literal cross and you can't miss it. It is a cross in the sky and you can't miss it for anything other than the it's one of the only constellations that looks like what it says, and it's isolated from all the other stars. It's in a dark spot of the sky. Now, where is that at? All the way south. You have to go, you have to, go to the equ equator or, or further oh, way over south. Oh. We're talking south-south. But way out there is a cross in the sky, wow. just hanging in the sky. You've got Virgo the virgin, and then she gives birth to her son, and she's still called this virgin as she is nursing her child, which is a picture of Jesus. You go all the way around the constellations from Virgo to Leo, 
the, the lion, the king, the king, which is God in his glory taking over charge. So the constellations were put there for the gospel message. Now, the stories have been ruined over the years, but there's still ancient civilizations where we can see the story the way it is supposed to be. And so the, all these nations and, and peoples, they have the gospel message. They may not know the name of Jesus, but they know that a virgin's going to give birth to a Messiah who's going to kill the serpent, and you can see all the, all the message across. And God has put that in there for people to see. Nobody is without excuse because the heavens declare God. The very heavens declare God. He created the stars to be a sign to the people. You know, now, Satan has come along with astrology and ruined all of that and changed the whole meaning of it, which is why a lot of, a lot of Christian pastors will not talk about the the gospel being stretched across the sky because they're so afraid that people are then going to get into astrology. Satan always counterfeits everything that God places, puts in place. So God has painted the, the skies with the gospel message. They declare God. Orion, I love the picture of Orion with his foot over the, over the serpent getting ready to strike him. You know, it's a, a beautiful picture because it's the gospel. It's the gospel. And, you know, it's a wonderful thing, and God declares. He says, nobody is without excuse because he has declared it. Some of these middle-of-the-nowhere kingdoms that don't know anything else, they know the stars. They may have ruined the stories over the years, but they know that they see this gospel story. We see these stories, and actually we go to the Babylonian Empire a lot of times to find the real stories behind these stars and the names of the stars. And there's wonderful stories just in the names, the original names of the stars. God says he named all the stars. You know, in Libra, they've got two major stars. The one that is uh, up high, the name of the star is the price insufficient. The one down below, the price sufficient that outweighs the other one. That God paid the price that we could not pay. All in the balance. <laughs> they may not know the exact name of Jesus, they may, but they do know, if they know the story of the stars, it's paraded from them every night. Jesus born, all the way to becoming king. <laughs> if Satan has counterfeited something, there has to be an original to be counterfeited. Now, he's taken and ruined the stories of the stars. Then he turns them into know your future by the stars and all these other things. So he is given, just like everything else, he has multiple lies for every truth. God says, this is the way, the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Satan comes, ah, you don't need anything or any religion or this religion and gives us a hundred religions to go into when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Satan says, oh, here, let me give you a whole bunch of different lies. Satan does this over and over again. When God gives us a truth, Satan produces a lie. God, we talked earlier, God says sanctity in, 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 the, in the womb. I've created that. And we have all kinds of lies from Satan about it. Now it's not important, it's just a blob of tissue, it's your choice, it's you know, all the negatives about it, and says just get rid of it. It's not important. God has no plan for it because there is no God in his mind. And so we see over and over the lies 
that Satan has. And it is so critical for us to stand back and say, God, I need to know your truth. I need to know you and find him in all that we do. Because it's tough. It is really tough to follow God if we're not really in his word. We're not in him. Where the Holy Spirit is not indwelling us, we'll never know the truth. And it's very important for us to get to know the truth. All right. Sorry, went over. We're going to end here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask that you help us as we go about your business, guide and lead us, teach us what you would want us to, to know, and help, and help us listen. Help us to listen to your word as you speak and, and listen to you as our guide and follow you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.